0: Thank you to Rod Johnson at the Atomist HQ for the intro music, and I am super happy to be here. I'm Jessica Kerr, and this is anarcho Syndicalist Tech.
1: Yay, Jessica, I love how enthusiastic you are, and I love you, but I think that we are looking for something that appeals to maybe a few more people, and maybe just, I don't know, has something a little bit more. Uh, what else have we got?
0: Everybody likes Rachmaninoff.
1: That is true, but I was talking about the uh, show name.
0: Okay, okay. Let's be greater than code!
1: Yay! And uh, I'm Sam Livingston Gray, and I am here to welcome the amazingly talented and scary smart Julia Evans. Julia is a developer who works on infrastructure at Stripe, and she likes making programs go fast and learning how to debug weird problems, and she thinks you too can be a wizard programmer. Julia, welcome to the show. Hello! I'm delighted to be here.
0: Julia, you're a fabulous infrastructure developer at Stripe. I know this from experience, but you also write some really good blog posts.
2: Yeah, I write, I think, an abnormal amount of blog posts. So why would you do such a thing? So I started writing for maybe a weird reason. I don't tell people this, but I guess I'll tell you now. So I was at the Recurse Center, which was this like, three-month program, and I was like, well, I want to get a job at the end. And I was like, well, how will I get an awesome job? So I decided I was going to have a media strategy. And my media strategy was I wrote a blog post about what I learned every day.
1: That's fantastic.
2: Every day. Wow. Before 12 weeks. Wow. And then after I did, did that, I was like, oh, blogging is really awesome. Um, And people seem to like these like weird blog posts I write every day. Um, Maybe I'll keep writing. So I did. And now it's three years later.
0: So that I guess writing a blog post every day for 12 weeks takes the fear out of writing a blog post.
2: I think right. so, a little bit. I was like, no one is going to read this except maybe my friend Tavish. Um, and Tavish would read them and would be like, great blog post, Julia. And i was trying to like maintain that attitude of like, oh, no one's going to read this except maybe Tavish. Um, even if I know it's not true.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Write for your friends. And if anybody else happens to get benefit out of it, bonus. Exactly. So I guess that's part of your origin story. We always ask people for their origin story. It's now a tradition. How did you come to be at the Recurse Center?
2: My partner convinced me to go. Basically, I don't know, I had a job. And then I was like, I don't think I want to have this job anymore. And my partner was like, why don't you quit your job and go to the Recurse Center for three months and like do fun programming things?
1: Was the job not in tech?
2: Uh, it was not tech. Um, I'd been working as a programmer so I worked as a programmer for two years before going to RC. And before that, I did two computer science degrees. Awesome.
0: Wow. So you're, uh, you're not starting from nothing here.
2: Uh, I was not starting from nothing. <laughs> no. But I did still feel like there are so many awesome things I could learn, which is still true true today. Right. And so I was like, I'm just going to spend 12 weeks learning awesome stuff about computers. And I did. That sounds so amazing.
0: It's like you have a a second developer life.
2: Right. Yeah, I think so. I think that was, like, the start of my second life.
1: Does this mean that you have an alter ego, like a superhero? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) We won't tell anyone, I promise.
0: Yeah, and it's like you develop that alter ego by learning awesome things about computers for 12 weeks and blogging about it.
2: Right. And I think, like, by blogging about it, I was like, oh... I can be the person who writes awesome things on the internet, like, because I would read all kinds of awesome things on the internet for like my whole life before then, right? Like I'd been programming like on and off for like 10 years and I'd read so many awesome things on the internet, but I was like, I could famous. write them too. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that's, that's an interesting transformation that I mean, not everybody can quit their job and go spend three weeks at the Recurse Center, but everybody can like learn an awesome thing and blog about it, maybe at a lower frequency.
2: <laughs> Probably at a lower frequency, but Yeah. But it's true. Um, And I read, like, so many awesome things written by people. Like, I read this guy named Adam Perry, who wrote a blog post about how he was, like, rewriting LibC in Rust. I think that was it. There's this project called, like, Um And he was like, oh, well, you can just rewrite these functions from C to Rust one at a time and then, like, test whether or not they work. And he was like, this project is, like, 20% done. And it was really cool. I don't know. (laughs) And I was like, this is an amazing blog post.
0: Yeah. So there's like totally irrational. What would you ever use this for activities? What you do is you learn something and then you blog about it. And this is something that we're pushing at Atomist blogging is shipping mm-hmm. hmm. because if something works, but nobody knows about it, it's not useful. But helping people know about it is that's actually that's right. And I think I
2: sometimes like think of myself as like a developer advocate, like on the side, but like only like not for things that I make or. For- for what my company makes, like I'm like I'm going to sell you on Linux. Like here slash proc, you should be awesome. you should know about it, right? And so I think of myself as like trying to sell you stuff that you probably already have on your computer. <laughs> That's fabulous, <laughs> and that I have like no stake, um, except that I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, so that's like, nice it's, it's like I wrote, or like I talk about s and I'm like, well, it's kind of like I wrote S-Trace, right? Um, even though I didn't, because there are all these people who wouldn't know about S-Trace, but so word weren't for me. Um,
0: you made the stickers. You give out I the did. stickers. You are totally a developer advocate for S-Trace.
2: <laughs> I am. Um, and it's so, so it's almost like I created S-Trace for those people, right?
0: Exactly. They didn't have it before, and now it is useful to them. Yeah. Yay, Julia. Um, yeah.
1: And I didn't write any code at all. But you wrote English, which is harder than code.
0: <laughs> English is hard. It's definitely less work than writing essays, though. Using code is hard, it turns out. It's and when tra- you teach people to use code, then, yeah, you add value to it. So that's sweet.
1: Like, knowing that you can do a thing? That's huge. Yeah.
0: So speaking of blog posts, you wrote one about asking questions.
2: Yeah. Um, asking questions is one of my favorite things. And I realized that I knew something about it that I should maybe tell people. Um, So I wrote this blog post, which was like, how do you ask a good question? And I was kind of inspired by this blog post that I hate by ESR called like, <laughs> it's called like how not to ask stupid questions. I think it's called how to ask questions the smart way. And it spends like most of its time insulting you. Um And then sometimes <laughs> it's good advice. Um So I was like, I want to write a post about how to ask good questions that has good advice, but that does not like mostly insult you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Everybody appreciates that, I'm sure.
2: So so I was thinking about, like, how do you ask a good question? And, like, what are the parts of that? So should I tell you what the parts of it I figured out are? Yes. Okay, so part one that I love to do is to say what you already know. So maybe you're asking a question about, like, how the Linux kernel works. And you could be like, okay, well, I don't know a lot. But I know that there is code... Um, running on my computer, and some bit is written in C, and some bit is written in assembly. And the person could be like, "Great, good start." Like you can start to like frame your question in the context of like what you know. And actually, like stating what you know is pretty hard, right? And like at this point, I know like several things about the Linux kernel. Um, so if I'm asking you about Linux kernel, I need to figure out like what are the relevant facts that I know right now. It helps me like reflect on like what I know. Then the other person knows like what kind of question I'm asking, right?
1: This is also a great way to uh, find out if you have any incorrect assumptions early on in the process, which is uh, really important.
2: <laughs> because frequently the things that I say I know are actually wrong. <laughs> and I'll be like, I know these five things, and they're like, four of those are true. And you're like, yeah, I'm learning
1: something before I even ask the question I want to ask.
0: Oh, yeah. So one, it helps you organize where you are now and forces you to put that into words, which helps. It's amazing how much English can clarify our understanding of code. And two, you might find an assumption that's wrong. And three, it lets the person answering the question as a teacher, it lets them put themselves in your context. Exactly. Yeah. So I know that before asking a question, you should state briefly what you know. What else can I do when asking a good question?
2: <laughs> so one way I think about asking questions is like there's a person um, who has information that I want and they might not like have a talk prepared about the information. Like they might they like have the information in their head somewhere, but it's, it might not be like organized in a way where they can just like tell me it, right? So it might be like, like how do like SQL queries work? And they will be like, well, I know a lot about that, but, like, how do SQL queries work is, like, a pretty broad question. Um And if they haven't already prepared an answer to that, they might not be able to actually answer it. So what I like to do is try to ask something that's, like, really specific and, in particular, maybe, like, fact-based. Um So one example I came up with in this post was, like, I know that, like, Hadoop uses a strategy. Like, if we're talking about, like, joins, I could be like, well, I know that Hadoop uses a thing called a hash join, which is where you, like, have, like, a hash table of like all the primary keys and then you just like look them up like you can't keep this like hash table in memory and then you like go through your other table and you just like look it all up and i could be like is that a joining strategy that like postgres uses right if the person like if i know that the person knows a lot about postgres and they could be like yes or no right Mm -hmm. or
1: sometimes
2: or sometimes it's like a much more like the question is a lot closer to a fact than how to join the work in Postgres, right? And then maybe they won't, like, maybe that'll bring out something related. Like, that reminds me of something else a lot more useful. But yeah, I like to get really specific.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because you need to give people, like, a direction to go. Or in that case, you're giving them a starting point. Like, is it like right. this? So it's, there's almost a yes or no, but it's never going to be like, yes, no. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's probably actually like it's a yes or no question,
2: but the answer will probably be sort of complicated.
0: Right. Because you're asking for the subtleties and the, the alternatives and things like that. So you've given them a starting point.
1: Is this like when you, when somebody comes up and asks you, like, what's the best way to fit this thing into that thing? And you, and you sort of look at it and go, well, hmm, okay, I guess you could do this. And then you find out that the reason they're trying to fit this thing in, into that thing is because they want to like water their yard. And maybe, maybe the best answer is not to, you know, try to fit this thing into that thing. It's to, you know, have your kid do it or something, which is a horrible non-tech analogy, but that's what I had on the top of my head, right?
2: Right. Yeah, that's a really good, it's like, tell the person, like, give some, the person, like, some context about what you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, like a direction to go.
1: Then, you know, as somebody who maybe is being asked that question, I can be like, well, okay, so if you needed to do this, here are some strategies that might work. But since I know what you're actually trying to accomplish, let's go and look at this whole other new thing that I get to teach you about.
0: That's true, because you need some combination of specific and open-ended.
2: Right. I think I often use these like weird specific questions as kind of like like sometimes I'm trying to extract information from someone, but I don't know exactly what information that is yet. If that makes <laughs> sense. Like I haven't figured it out. Like
0: If we did, we'd just Google it. Right, yeah. So they're
2: they're kind of like these like weird probes.
1: So they're kind of like nerd sniping just to get the person's attention. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I
2: think so. Yeah. Like, 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 this is kind of a weird setting where, like, I sometimes ask people questions just to, like, kind of, like, increase my knowledge about something. L- like, if I'm working with someone who, like, knows a lot about Scala and I'm like, I need to know more about this, but I don't, like, sometimes I don't have a specific task, but I just want to have more information. But, like, please tell me more information about Scala is, like, probably will not result in a useful answer. <laughs> <laughs> so instead, I'll ask them some, like, weird, specific question, um, that I think might have an interesting answer and, like, see if it works or not. <laughs>
0: If nothing else, it's fun to get people talking about something they they like.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Also, it, it builds relationships.
2: Someone pointed out, I, I, I left that originally um, because I forgot about it, but someone was like, Julia, you have to be willing to say when you don't understand something. And I was like, oh, it's true. You have to be willing to say when you don't understand.
1: Just like you have to be willing to ask a question in the first place and maybe appear like you don't know everything. And that's okay
2: it is okay. And like, it's something I've practiced so much that I've become like really good at it. I'll be like, what's like a keep alive? I don't know. Like, what does that mean? And I've started to think of like, being willing to say that you don't understand is like something that, like, senior developers do. Like, I'm like, this is a property of someone who's like, comfortable with what they're doing. Because I have noticed that when I talk to people who really know what they're doing, they're often like, I don't understand this one thing, right,
0: like and like it's like not
2: a big deal for them to say that,
0: right, because when you do understand how join queries work in Hadoop, it's not so painful to say that you don't know how they work in Postgres,
2: yeah, yeah, right. and
0: yeah, it is a sign of confidence, also, like as a senior person, I might hear somebody say a sentence about joins in Postgres and I might hear one or two terms that I don't know, right, and those I can ask about it's different when I hear eight terms that I don't know.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I think this is something that happens really often to junior people is they'll be like, I don't know what any of those 30 words mean. Like, it feels like too much to ask about all of them.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, Yeah. For seniors who are in not even an explicit leadership role, but if you're in a role where you're around more junior developers and you're trying to model behavior, this is a really useful strategy as well. Like, I will often deliberately ask a question that I know the answer to just so that I make it okay to ask a question.
0: Yeah, that's really important. Sometimes I'll do that just to make it okay for a woman to ask a question because it's been all men up to that point. Yeah.
2: Um, though, I do want to say like, I've definitely been in situations where there are 30 terms I didn't understand. And I did ask about all 30 of them. (laughs) But I just was like, Hey, can we set aside like two hours?
0: right right right. when you have the right context that's a fantastic thing these
2: 40 words
0: mean? it's like following all the links in a wikipedia article except more interesting
2: yeah and so like i think it's okay to do that but you can't it's a different like ask right because you're not just like can you just explain this one thing to me really quickly you're like oh i have a very large number of questions (laughs) (laughs)
1: right
0: But when you explore it like that, I mean, you really get some information. And then the other thing is, I am totally willing to spend two hours explaining something to Julia because she's going to go write a blog post about it. And then anybody else who asks, I can just point them to that.
2: That's right. Yeah. Like if if you're asking a lot of questions then like writing down what you learned afterwards can be a good way
1: to like give back. And to solidify the information in your own brain too, right? Yeah.
0: I think this episode is going to motivate a lot of people to blog. I hope so. Yeah, actually. So if you hear this episode, and you write a blog post, please ping us on Twitter at greater than code, and we will retweet it.
1: Yes, please. Oh, that reminds me, there was another thing that uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about who write blogs, is that uh, they will blog something, uh, even if it's just like some stupid technical thing, like I couldn't figure out how to get library X to do Y. And then they find like a year and a half later that they're trying to do that again, and they Google and they find their own blog post, So it benefits you too. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, that's that's totally me. I've done that.
2: This happens to me all the time. The other day I was having a conversation with my friend Amy about like, and she was just saying this like really interesting thing. And I was like, can I just write this in a blog post so I remember? Yep. (laughs) It, It really works. Like, I think if I don't write things on my public blog, I don't remember them.
0: Oh, yeah. It's an extension of our brains, right? Yeah. There's a cognitive bias for that. There's a cognitive bias for
1: that. Yeah, there's a cognitive bias called the Google effect, which is where we actually find it easier to forget information if we know we can find it again later. I'm probably horribly—I'm just quoting that from memory. But, yeah. Let me go look that up, actually. <laughs> I didn't even mean it that way. That's so great. Google effect. Wikipedia. The Google effect, also called digital amnesia, is the tendency to forget information that can be found readily online by using search engines such as Google. (laughs) Boom.
0: That's a (laughs) win, though. I mean, there's only so
2: much I can hold in my brain. I have one more question-asking tip. Yes. Which I kind of came up with while writing this post, and I love it. So I think there's sometimes this tendency to be like, who should I ask a question about this thing? And you're like, well, I'll find the person who knows the most about it, and I'll ask them, because they'll know. And that's like, pretty effective like if you ask the person who knows the most about the thing they probably will know the answer but it's also kind of a problem because that person can get kind of overloaded so i try to be better at being like well can i find the person who knows with like the least knowledge who probably knows the answer to my question and then ask them and i think this is kind of cool because like it distributes like question answering power over more people and it's cool for that person because they're like oh i am i am important right because if everyone always asks the person who knows the most, then everyone is like, "No one asked me. I guess I don't matter." Like, yeah, that's a great. It's thing. an
1: opportunity to realize, as the person being asked, that you do know something too. So it's a great confidence builder.
2: Yeah.
0: And if they don't, then you go together to the person who knows the next most, and then you both learn the thing.
2: Yes. Right. Yeah, that's like the the cash
1: miss, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the cash miss that's like benefits everybody.
0: Yeah. I like like how at Stripe you have a person on the team on run who's in charge of answering questions and they're not in charge of knowing everything they're just in charge of receiving the question providing a prompt response of oh hey i care about you and then they go find out the answer and then they know the answer and so knowledge really gets spread around on the team that way
2: yeah it's really it's really good um, but but I think it's hard to remember to do. Like I think it's hard to like not just go to the person with all the answers. But I think I feel like it really pays off.
0: There's another reason too, and that's because the person who knows a little bit more than you is going to have a much easier time explaining it to you, right? In terms that you already know. So if you don't want to take two hours to track down the eight words in that sentence that the expert just used that you don't understand, you're gonna get a useful answer faster from the person who just learned it. Yeah. I think we know everything about asking questions now.
1: Or at least we know enough to get started.
0: <laughs> or at least we know enough to get started. And how to ask about how to get better.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I noticed one of the next things you wanted to talk about was ops, uh, which is great because, uh, I, I, I can't even ops. <laughs> so <laughs> I
2: think I'm trying to be like the person who just learned about ops <laughs> <laughs> so that I Did could explain it. To like, I, I read a lot of charity majors' posts about blog ops, and I think of her as being like the person who knows all the things. And I'm trying to be like, I know three things,
0: three things, <laughs> but I just blog. learned it. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. The best time to write a blog post about something is when you just learned about it, because then it's fresh and it's not too involved. It's it's bite sized because you just learned <laughs> a thing.
1: So, Julia, what do you know about ops that you can help us learn?
0: What is ops? Awesome. Uh, What is ops?
2: So, you write software, and then at some point you need to run your software on a computer, and there's this exciting thing, or like 200 computers, or whatever, and there's this exciting thing that happens when you run software, which is that a lot of stuff will go wrong in unexpected ways. Stuff that's not even in your software. which is stuff that is not even in your software goes wrong in unexpected ways. And so I was trying to like articulate like the phases I went through of like learning about operations. So I started out as like my software works. What are you talking about? Phase, which was like I would work on these like relatively small like web apps which would mostly work and their databases would work and everything was fine and not that many people tried to use them, and they were generally just kind of up. And so I was like, well, what's operations? Everything is fine. Like, I can set up Apache. What's the problem? And this this was kind of, I think, appropriate at that point. Like, it was like a workable strategy. Um And then at some point, I came to work at Stripe, which has, like, many more computers and also higher reliability requirements and, like, many more components. And I was like, oh my god, there are so many possible things that can break. How does anyone run software? This is impossible. <laughs> so I kind of went from, like, this is, like, not even a problem to, like, how do you even do this? Like, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe you should just hide under the bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and because, like, a lot of the things that can happen are, like, things, like, so you can have, like, spikes in traffic, right, which maybe you didn't expect. Or, like, maybe some piece of, like, software as a service just, like, suddenly stops working for a minute or for 10 minutes or for an hour which um,
0: triggers an error case in one piece of your software, which triggers some error code down later that was never tested because it's error cases and those are hard to test, and then all kinds of things happen.
2: Right, yeah. So, like, all these unexpected things happen. And I was like, well, how am I supposed to write software that works under these conditions? <laughs> right. And so then I, I kind of learned to be scared. I think of, like, learning to be, like, kind of a little scared of software running in production. Um, is good, like, like, not, like, too scared, but just being, like, oh, like, kind of having sense of, like, something could go wrong here, or, like, this might break, and, like, moving away from this, like, unlimited confidence that, like, everything will be fine.
1: (laughs) Shedding your Dunning-Kruger syndrome.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. That that was sort of helpful, but is not, like, not a good place to stop, right? Because um, you can also, like, I will never deploy my code because I'm scared of what will go wrong. Um, and, like, that's, like, an extremely bad place to be. Probably worse than, like, everything is fine. What could go wrong? Because then you just, like, never make any changes because you're too scared to, like, make them happen.
1: Which is absolutely not a metaphor for anything else in life. <laughs>
0: Yeah, as a perfectionist, you either delude yourself that everything's going to be fine, or you run away. So you have to kind of get past that, and we can. So what's a third phase?
2: Right. Um, So the third phase, I think, is a very long phase. (laughs) Um, And it's, like, maybe an entire career.
0: (laughs) Uh, Is it called Happily Ever After?
2: uh, No, I think it might be called, like, Operations Engineering. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I have to look forward to. (laughs) And, like, it doesn't actually stop. Like, it's not like, oh, you learn how to do operations and then there are no more problems. Like, the problems <laughs> continue forever.
0: <laughs> I think you just said that, like, development culminates in operations engineering. And I eventually guess. we get there. Yeah. I I, th- I feel that, too. I guess,
2: like, what I've been, like, trying to, like, solidify in my head is, like, I think I had this idea that you could just write software. And that if you're really good at writing software, um, you could write software that was correct and that would work. It turns out that this, I think, is not true. Like, what you do um, is you write software and then you try to write software that can, like, eventually evolve into something that works. Um, So you, like, put your software That's in it. production and you design it in a reasonable way. And then it gets, like, hit by all these, like, I don't know, like, the external service that doesn't work. And you kind of, like, learn over time what goes wrong with your service. And then you learn how to, like, make it resilient to those things. Um, So it's more of, like, a process of, like, designing something in like a hopefully reasonable way and then like teaching it about all the things that can go wrong as they happen. Um, and then like once all of the va- like, I think the idea is like if enough bad things happen, um, and you deal with them, then you'll end up with
1: something that mostly works. Oh, well, that's really interesting. So if. Can I try and recast this in a, in a slightly different way? Yeah. So what I have found in my own journey as a software developer is that my sort of overarching career goal has been to get better and better at writing software. And I started out writing writing software that I thought was decent, and then I found out that it was crap. And then I figured out, you know, how to maybe possibly someday make it less crap. Um, and at this point in my career, I've I've gotten to the point where I will like start something. And I'll put it out there, and then I'll see what else happens, and I will trust in my ability to not necessarily start with the best design to, uh, from the beginning, but to evolve, to refactor, to get there. Are you describing a similar process for, like, learning how ops works, where you eventually, you don't know all the answers, but you trust in your ability to fix things as they come up?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like, I think you have to accept, like, that it's impossible to know all the answers about how to operate <laughs> your software when you write it, Right. Yeah. Um but then as you as you operate it you can learn what's necessary to operate that piece of software.
0: Yeah, because there are infinitely many problems that can go wrong, so you just have to make it so you can notice what does and then handle the ones that actually happen.
1: And be able to ask questions to find out what went wrong when you don't know. Yeah, yeah. so
0: you need like that visibility into your software. I think that's that's one piece of the software that can be evolved into something that works.
2: Right. And this is where you get all these awesome things like monitoring, right? Um, Where you can be like, oh, I can see what my software is doing because I have really good monitoring around it.
0: And then you have to be able to change it. So the other piece is, I think a lot of what we just said is that software is change. The development process is continually changing our software, evolving it into what we need. And therefore, change has to be easy. So on one hand, you need visibility to find out what is needed, and then you need the ability to make those changes without fear. Yeah. Yeah. This is my new favorite phrase today, software that can be evolved into something that works. There's
2: this really good post slash talk by Ryan Kennedy called Fear-Driven Development, which is about kind of like fear and deploying code and how you can end up in the state where you're too scared to deploy your code, uh, but not for any real reason. Like, you can be like, I'm scared, and someone would be like, Well, why are you scared? And you'd be like, I don't know, I'm just scared. And that's like a really bad place to be.
1: Because of Pavlovian Association, right? I've learned that when I deploy code, I get an electric shock. <laughs>
2: yeah but but of course we've we've been like well it's good to be scared but it's also those things have to be like associated with reasons right so you you can be like okay i'm scared because i know that this code path is untested and so i'm worried that when i put it into production it won't work and that it'll break Um, which is a very reasonable but that that, that's like something you can do something right about that like maybe at a test um and (laughs) then but it's like you need to have this kind of discipline to be like why am i scared and then like associate with without a reason and then deal with that reason and then be like, okay, I'm not allowed to be scared anymore. Cause I like, once you've dealt with all the reasons you need to go deploy it and not just like, sit and be like, I'm still scared. <laughs> yeah.
0: And if you make an automated test, then you never have to be scared again of that particular thing showing up. That is a lot of work though.
1: So what I know now is that I am pretty good at testing and I feel like, uh, the things that are Reasonable to test, I can test pretty well, and the things that are unreasonable to test, I can usually still figure out. But I feel like at my at this point in my in my DevOps career, uh, which hasn't even really started yet, right? I feel like I don't have even any idea what's going on. So I can address all of those fears that have to do with like untested code paths, right? Like I got that, but I don't know how to deal with fears about, like, unknown things that could go wrong with ops, or if there's something that I know could go wrong with ops, I don't know how to test it.
0: Yeah, like, how do you test file system is full?
1: Yeah, right? So, like, are there strategies we can use that are ops-specific to help mitigate those fears?
0: Mm, great question. This file
2: system being full one is interesting. So maybe this is wrong, but, like, I guess i try to separate the fears into things that I think will definitely happen. And things that I don't know if they'll happen or not. And to some extent, like, I feel like with things where you're not sure if they're going to happen or not, um, like, maybe there's something which has never happened before. Right. And you're like, well, what if that happens? Um, I feel like what you often do is you just, like, let go of it. And you're like, okay, when it happens, we'll deal with it. But the things, like, which don't really happen, if you spend too much time worrying about them, it'll, like, slow you down. If that makes sense? Um, And, like, your service isn't going to be up 100% of the time, right? This is, like, one thing I think we've learned from, like, um, that we've seen a lot. It's this idea of, like, an error budget, and you're, like, things are going to go wrong. So as long as you think it won't be a catastrophe, if this unlikely thing happens, then maybe you're just, like, well, let it happen.
0: (laughs) Also, I like to think about it as in the terms of, okay, what's the worst that can happen? And then if you deal with like making it just not the end of the world, the worst that can happen is we have to restore from backup, but we're going to find out that that happened in this way. And then we're going to take this action. Then you've covered file system not found, covered the server exploded. If you can make like one not the end of the world scenario around a bunch of errors, then you can be nervous. I might get paged, but not scared.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then for the things that, you know, happen and that are happening regularly, like you kind of have like some experience of them, like you've seen them happen before, probably. And then you can like maybe simulate the error cases around those.
0: Right. And then you can do like frustration driven development of I'm tired of getting paged at three in the morning. <laughs> I'm going to make this problem be taken care of itself. Yeah. And yeah. you can justify that because you can say, look, it happened. We measured it twice. And now I'm going to fix this. And now I expect those to be zero which gets back into the monitoring. It's so hard to make software observable, but it's worth it. It is worth it. Okay. So we were talking about operations and how scary it is, but how you can evolve into dealing with things as they come up.
2: Oh, I came up with a concrete thing, actually. So we were talking about knowing how your service is. And one thing I did when I was kind of getting started with trying to understand operations, was I made a dashboard for a service I had that showed the current state of that service. And that was useful to me when there was a problem. And I could look at the dashboard and be like, that's on fire. Um, Or I could look at it and be like, oh, that's fine. And that was like, I feel like a really useful task for me to do. And it was also helpful to other people. And it looks pretty. (laughs) And it looks pretty.
0: Making dashboards is shipping.
2: I learned recently what DevOps meant by reading Effective DevOps. (laughs) which is why the amazing at DevOps and at SIGJE. So the thing I learned was I thought DevOps was like you use Chef and you run servers and stuff. But it turns out that DevOps is actually about collaboration. <laughs> and that the point is like not like, oh, you run servers and stuff. It's like when you have people who are running services and people who are operating those services, um, like those people need to like work well together. And especially I think this especially comes up in larger organizations, because like in very small organizations, you're just like, I'm going to write the service and I'm going to do all the operations for it and I'm going to do everything. This is great. And that like that's actually fine. People do that. And it, it works like when you're a small company.
0: I have thought of that as DevOps. DevOps means you write it, you run it. So then I, now I feel all this pressure to understand all the things. Right. But then
2: in a larger organization, this is not, I think, what happens, because what happens is that you have people who specialize, right? And there are some people who are very good at operations engineering, and they know a lot, like they've run a lot of services. They know a lot about how to make services run smoothly. And there are people who know a lot, maybe a lot about, like, front-end development and our amazing front-end developers. And, like, like you don't probably don't need your front-end developers to be your database engineers, right? Like, it's, like, reasonable for those to be different people.
1: Right. But in a lot of organizations, there are really strong forces that push people into their own silos.
2: Right. Um, So I think DevOps is like not about like making those literally the same person, but it's more about like having people work well together. So like maybe an example of this, is I work on infrastructure and there's a security team and I'm not on the security team and I don't necessarily know as much about security as I would like but I just try to like maintain a good relationship with the security team and I'll try to like tell them about concerns I have really early um, and just like involve them in discussions so I can be like oh hey I'm doing this thing um, should we do it like x or like y and they'll be like definitely x and I'm like good that's great we talked about that really early because now I know what to do right
1: yeah. For me, um, DevOps has a lot in common with the, uh, I guess it's an old idea now, right? The, the old idea from extreme programming of having a whole team, which is XP jargon for have everybody who works on a project actually work on a project together as part of the same team rather than, you know, forcing people to go to a different floor of the building and like schedule meetings and, and, uh, you know, make it make it easy to have low latency, high bandwidth communication uh, across all of the disciplines that you need to effectively ship your product.
0: And shared objectives. Yeah. Like if the security team's only objective is to prevent a security breach, then their job has nothing to do with getting software out and is in direct conflict with yours. Right.
1: <laughs> so there's no code like no code. So.
2: Right. Right. Like, you you want to be like, well, our goal is to ship secure software.
0: Right, um, right.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, so if the security the security person it shares your objective of shipping this thing along with and not making it terribly insecure, that then you can collaborate. Oh, okay, so if DevOps is collaboration, what is, Jeff?
2: I don't know, provisioning automation?
0: Yeah, I guess it's like an automation part of operations engineering at that point yeah and it's it's like
2: it's like a, it's an important part of operations engineering
1: it's a tool and it's an important tool but it's you know it is to devops what skype is to devops for a distributed team right it's something that you need to do your job but the point is not really the tool
2: yeah another thing that i learned is considered like kind of part of the devops movement is continuous integration because i've always done like which is the idea that like maybe like you deploy your site 10 times a day um, or twenty times a day. But continuous deployment? Continuous deployment. Um maybe yeah. both. Oh right. So continuous integration is like you like have like small features and you merge them into master frequently, I think. Like you don't right. like develop on a branch for three months.
0: And then if um, if if as soon as those tests pass the software gets deployed without you pushing a button, then you have continuous deployment.
2: Yeah. Though I think by continuous deployment, sometimes people also just mean that you deploy your site very frequently. And like it's not like the weekly deploy.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there, there so it doesn't
2: things. necessarily have to be like instantly when you merge your code, but just that it happens a lot. But I, I think what I didn't realize is that like deploying your site 20 times a day is a radical idea um, or was a radical idea.
1: Still is in a lot of places.
2: And it still is in a lot of places. And I was like, oh, of course, it makes sense that it would be a radical idea if that's not what you were doing before.
0: I remember working in the enterprise and they had four deployments a year, April, July and September and occasionally an emergency in October, which let them say four.
1: right yeah i think that too has its roots uh in the xp and agile communities where there's this recurring idea that if there is some part of the development process that is causing you pain you should do it much more frequently so that you're forced to confront that pain on a daily basis and develop ways of making that thing a lot easier to do
0: right and then you get the automation yeah and you want to make it not scary to do which in the end we being software developers, we solve with automation. And I guess this is where some of the confusion comes in of DevOps, you might think of it as bringing development to operations as in automating your operations, like with Chef. But it's also about bringing awareness of operations into development with that collaboration.
2: Yeah. And I think this is what like a lot of, especially operations people are trying, like an idea that people operations people are trying to push. Because they're like, okay, we automated operations, but you developers still need to know how to operate your services. Like you can't just say, okay, we wrote Puppet, um, and now we're done. <laughs> yeah, like I think there's maybe like more awareness that like operations people need to like do some programming than there is that developers need to know about operations.
0: And so you write blog posts about it.
2: And so you write blog posts about it.
0: No, I mean like you specifically. And zines! We didn't talk about zines at all.
2: Okay, let's talk about zines. So so you're
0: known for, like, conveying information about things like S-Trace, not just through your enthusiasm in English words, but also with cute drawings.
2: Yeah. Uh, So this has been kind of a weird thing. Um, The only reason I started writing drawings is that in the middle of 2015, my wrists hurt a lot and I didn't want to type on my computer. Um, So I was like, well, instead, but I still have a lot of ideas I want to post on the Internet. Um, So I would sometimes, like, draw them on a piece of paper and take a picture and post them on twitter and this was like surprisingly successful despite my complete lack of drawing skills and so i started doing it more and now apparently this is something that people know that i do
0: so typing hurt so you did something else more and it turned out that that was like a surprise win
2: right. yeah it's like surprisingly amazing um and so i keep on doing it because it works like unreasonably well so like what like like why does it work so well i don't know if i know why it works so well um does it even matter yeah so i I think it maybe doesn't matter but like so for example i wanted to write about stuff and someone was like julia write about slash proc and i was like okay everyone knows about slash proc but i'll write about it anyway and what i learned as i learned every time i should have known this by now but every time i think oh no everyone knows about this already no one knows about slash i don't even
1: know what it is right now as we speak
2: (laughs) right exactly So slash proc um, is a file system in Linux. It's a directory in Linux that has all kinds of cool information about your computer. So it'll show you like all of the files that every process has open. And in particular, if you accidentally delete a file, but it's still open, like if a process still has it open, you can recover it using slash proc.
1: Interesting. Which is really
2: cool, right? So it's kind of like this like wizard thing that exists on Linux that is really useful. It also has all the environment variables for every process. So if you want to know what environment variables your process it has, you can just read it out of slash proc.
0: Because Linux uses the file descriptor abstraction for like everything.
2: Yeah, right. So it's like everything is a file. And like so then the list of environment variables for your process is a file? I don't know. Um, but it is. It's got to be somewhere. <laughs> it's somewhere. Um, and
0: in Linux, so... everything's got to be a file descriptor.
2: Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote like a little comic about this and I posted it on Twitter and everyone was like, what is this? This
0: is amazing. And I was like, oh yeah, it is amazing. (laughs) Good point. Awesome. So we will link to some of your drawings in the show notes. Is it time for reflections? I have one more thought about drawings. One more thought about drawings. Go
2: on. Which is I give a bunch of talks. And I realized that I got really mad that I couldn't, like, force people to remember the stuff I said in the talk. <laughs> so I wanted to like be able to give them something physical, um, which is kind of why I started writing zines. So, like, for example, I know people can't see this in real life, um, but I'm currently holding up a small zine called Production Machine Learning, um, which so I wrote last cute. night. And it has, like, a bunch of comics about, like, things I learned about doing machine learning in production because I'm giving a talk about it. And so I was like, well, I'll just print out like 30 of these like little tiny booklets um, with comics in them and give them to people at the talk, And then maybe they'll remember what I said.
1: And it looks like that's like a little eight page thing with like two sheets of paper stapled together in the middle and folded.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's It's literally two pieces of paper stapled together and folded. Nice.
0: Which sounds like totally simple. And all you have to do is take like eight drawings and put them together. But I've seen Julia work on these and she like does layouts and she does plans and then she gets feedback on each page. So print out her scenes and appreciate them. (laughs) And then absolutely try to make your own, but don't think it's going to be as easy as she makes it look.
2: (laughs) This one I wrote last night, it took me two
1: hours. Yeah, but how many did you write before that?
2: Only three. Uh, But the other three I spent a lot more time on. But I'm kind of experimenting with the idea of like just like write this in two hours and then print it and be like, here, this is a cool tiny thing. Um, instead of like edit it for like 100 hours, right? Which is what Make I'm doing. The is shipping. Yeah, because shipping things is fun, also.
0: Yeah, so like someone could try that for their next project meeting. Yeah, and that would be memorable.
2: Yeah, and then people can read it on the bus. This is my vision of zines.
0: Yeah, maybe totally start a conversation on the bus with somebody next to you who is like, what are you learning about? That looks amazing. What is this slash brook? I need this in my life.
1: Listeners, if this happens to you, please tell us.
0: Okay, awesome. So one thing we do at the end of the show is we like to ask each of us what's something that you will take away from this that you learned and will maybe continue thinking about.
1: Well, I can start. So um one thing that I am going to take away from this is that just this idea that even at my this point in my career, I still ask a lot of questions, and I've just sort of gotten in the habit of saying whatever comes into my head. But it's really useful to have a bunch of little concrete strategies for asking questions more effectively. So uh, I think I might actually have to try a couple of these explicitly and deliberately and uh, see what happens. So thank you very much for that.
2: The thing I'm going to think about is this thing you said about like, if something is painful, then do it more often. Like, it's something that I've heard before. But I feel like it's very hard to do. um, Because it's like such a human instinct. If something is painful to do it less often. And be like, let's just not do that. Okay.
1: But didn't you do that when you wrote a blog post every day?
2: That wasn't actually painful. Oh, yay. (laughs) Um, but, But it was very effective to do it more often. And actually, yeah. No, it's a good point. I think I think it is. I think it is the same thing. But like, like, no matter how well I know that thing, it's still important for me to think about because there are always new things that are painful um, that I need to do more of.
0: Right. Typing is not one of them, though. If it hurts to type, do something else. <laughs> Definitely, I think that's right. <laughs> or get a brace, or or
1: work on your ergonomics, or something. We're talking about existential pain here, not physical pain.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're talking about about fear. And that has been a theme today of how do you deal with fear? How do you confront your fear in the case of like writing a blog post? If that's scary to you, just do it anyway, because you're going to find that those fears are unfounded. If asking questions is scary, put some work into the question and then you can ask it with confidence and know you're not wasting someone's time because you put thought into this and confront your fear of development and of operations in a couple ways. First of all, if you're not scared, you're doing it wrong. You don't know enough. (laughs) And once you are scared, you can like consciously think about, is this a fear that I can solve with automation, such as testing? Or the other one is when you have like a whole bunch of fears, put it into production anyway and see which ones happen and then deal with those. But make sure you can see which one's happening by adding visibility, because we fear the unknown. And if we can make what's happening a little more known, then yeah, we can be nervous, but not too afraid. And then we can ship. So that was awesome. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
2: you so much for having me. This was extremely fun. Yes, it was. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yes. And also... Greater Than Code is a community-supported podcast. Mandy, who is our podcast manager and editor, does a fantastic job, and this is made possible by our patrons. So if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash greater than code, and then you can get access to our little community Slack, in which we have nice, supportive, happy conversations, and sometimes amusing rants.
1: Oh, and stickers.
0: Oh, and we'll send you stickers. Yeah, Mandy will send you stickers.
1: All right, listeners, thank you, and uh, we'll see you next time.